Ralph Larson is a former senior CIA officer who spent much of his career working on Russia. Ralph now serves as the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and is a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Rolf has been on our show several times to discuss the war in Ukraine, and he joins us today to provide an update as we approach the one-year anniversary of Vladimir Putin's massive invasion of Ukraine. And at that point, if, if the Russian army were somehow facing defeat on the battlefield, then I think nuclear weapons, again, will be something we're going to be talking about and Putin will be thinking about. So that's my big fear. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rolf, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is good to have you with us again. And, you know, you always provide really interesting and important insights. So, um, so welcome back. Thank you, Michael. It's nice to be here. First, uh, first part of the new year. Talk about this important subject. Absolutely important. And, um, you know, we're just a few weeks away, right, from the one year anniversary of the invasion. So I think this is a great time to sort of take stock. I just want to start by noting that you're sharing with us your personal views here. You're not speaking on behalf of any organization. I know you're associated with several and just want to make that clear to my listeners. I know that's important. Rolf, I want to walk through with you a note that you sent me about a month ago on the importance of stepping back from the day-to-day developments on the battlefield or what's going on even in Russia in terms of the war in Ukraine and and rather look at things from a strategic perspective. And I guess I should just tell everybody that you send me multiple notes a day on the war and what's happening, and I, I read all of them. But this particular note really grabbed my attention because of your, your stepping back to the strategic level. So, you know, I'd really love to share some of those perspectives that you shared with me with my audience. So in the note that you sent, you argued that Vladimir Putin has, you know, what you sense 
to be a kind of a five-point strategy toward the war. And I'm going to ask you about each one of those five points and have you elaborate a little bit if that, if that makes sense. Sure, Michael, that'd be, that'd be great. So the first, the first piece of the strategy that, that, that you said is Putin's is Russia's strategic defense. What does that mean and what does that entail? Well, he has, in the first year of the war, started from a position where he was clearly mounting a war of aggression, he would call it a strategic offensive, to take over all of Ukraine. And what we saw in the first year is that wasn't a realistic plan. He underestimated several things, miscalculated a number of things. He is now almost a year into the war in a position of being what I would call in a strategic defense. And he's comfortable with it to some extent. Now, if you listen to his New Year's address, he didn't look comfortable at all. It's probably the most uncomfortable I've seen Vladimir Putin talking about the war in the 20 years he's been in rule. But he's in a situation where he's buying time by hunkering down in the four oblasts or regions that he's uh, seized, trying to ensure, if nothing else, he holds them. Because if he can hold those four oblasts and and at some point transition to some form of international acceptance with Ukrainian acquiescence to what he's accomplished militarily, that would be enough of a win for him. So that's what I mean by strategic defense. At the same time, demonstrate to Ukraine that no matter how hard it fights and how much aid it gets from Western nations and the United States, it can't go on the strategic offense to expel Russia from all the territories it's taken in Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. So that's where he stands. And if you, there are a number of indications, even in the last month since I wrote you that note, that suggest he still harbors a, if nothing else, ambition to mount some sort of offensive in 2023. But he can't do it right now. He won't be able to do it, in fact, until he's accomplished a number of things that he hasn't been able to accomplish in the first year of the war, created a successful process of mobilizing sufficient troops, training them well enough, equipping them well enough, having good enough leadership on the ground. One of the reasons why Vladimir Putin relies heavily on the military bloggers and his critics, his own critics, and is tolerant of all the all the uh, criticism that's been levied against the generals and the minister of defense and even himself in some cases is because he needs their advice. So that's what I mean by strategic of defense. And it remains to be seen at some point when the winter clears and the, and the ground again hardens or it goes transitions into spring and fall, whether the Russian army is capable of remounting some form of an offensive. So Rolf, what was it about his New Year's speech that made him seem so uncomfortable to you? I think and it's reading body language. It's there's nothing really objective in in what I'll offer. Sort of my reaction to it yeah. that he he seemed to to me anyway uh, to lack his characteristic swagger. Right. Mm. He he didn't seem to express that confidence. The the bitterness uh, he expressed towards the West, the United States in particular, seemed you know even more misplaced than it usually does. His blame, the blame he placed for every the situation he created for his country and for Ukraine and the world. He went out of his way again to try to accept no part of the responsibility for really what's 
been a disaster and is going to be a disaster, I maintain, for Russia. And maybe there's a growing sense he has of, of this, even if he is reluctant to acknowledge it, that the longer the war lasts, the worse the strategic price is that Russia will pay in the world. He can only ally himself with China or Iran or other countries to some extent. Russia needs partners. They need banking partners. They need they need uh, uh, Western and global input to the country. He's suffered a tremendous hemorrhaging of talent, uh, of some of the best talent he's got, the younger generation of talented IT workers and others who have left the country. Right. So anyway, I think that's the mood I felt was particularly glum. And I honestly felt that he seemed a little defeated, deflated. Yeah, interesting. So the second piece of Putin's strategy that, that you see, Rolf, is Moscow's desire, and you use the word, to attract an unconditional ceasefire. And, and you emphasize that word, attract, you know, as opposed to seek. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, up until, uh, actually, I believe it was over the holidays, uh, Putin had never actually expressed an interest in, in uh, ceasefire and negotiations himself. And he suddenly did. However, he would much prefer creating a condition on the ground where Ukraine is compelled, essentially for supplicate itself, which is not going to happen, I will say, an aside based on what certainly I've learned about the Ukrainian will to fight and will to survive. But that's what he's counting on, that Ukraine will will come to him asking for suing for peace because they're forced to. And and that's his preference, but it's also important for him politically because it will immediately betray weakness if he if he expresses an interest in talks based on anything but Russia's firm what they've already expressed to be position that these four oblasts are now part of Russian territory themselves that they have become part of Russia since they were in his mind, legally annexed into the country. So no negotiations can occur without the Ukrainians accepting that, that those facts on the ground. Uh, and of course, Ukraine can't do that. That is essentially a, a, a unconditional surrender on their part if they accept the ceasefire negotiation on the basis of Putin's uh, having annexed these territories into Russia. So that's why he, up to now, has not been interested in discussing terms of peace. And again, I think it's a little sign that he's uh, wobbling a bit to actually state that he himself is for some form uh, of uh, negotiation, even though he's made it clear that would only start when Ukraine accepts uh, the facts on the ground. So, Rolf, the ceasefire actually makes sense from a military perspective, from a Russian military perspective, correct? In terms of the giving him the breather he needs to to kind of regroup and and get ready to fight some more is that correct of course and if if uh, a ceasefire is predicated on ukrainian acceptance so uh, that russia is holding the territory it currently holds then that's a huge win for him it avoids the uh the the basically starts the negotiation on a basis that that Ukraine would have to accept a, a large loss in its territory uh, as well as Russian responsibility for everything it's done to this point now of course some people would argue that that could be revisited in the actual negotiation but i guess the question for the people who are advocating talks 
uh, including uh, some world leaders right now as we speak, who are, who are again moving into this space and trying to create conditions where the Zelensky and Putin can talk. Uh, again, my question to those leaders would be, how does Ukraine do that if Putin doesn't move off his position that those territories belong to Russia? Right. Ralph, the third, the third piece of the strategy on your list um, is what you call a scorched earth policy. What do you mean by that? And what does that entail? Yeah, modern warfare. I started out at West Point, of course, as you know, Michael, and I've talked about it. I never thought in the 21st century, uh, and it's not just happening, of course, in Ukraine, that we'd see the kind of warfare we see where uh, civilians are deliberately tar. Of course, it happened in the 20th century, too, in great scale in World War II and whatnot. But in the 21st century, you'd hope we would have progressed further than to see Russia now acknowledge something in the beginning of the war, even, that Putin and his generals were trying to... Uh, deny, which is that they were deliberately targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. So a major part of his policy is to target both Ukraine and Europe with weapon, weapon by weaponizing energy. And the way he's doing it in Ukraine is to turn off the lights. Yeah. And we all see it. We're watching it every day. And again, it's yeah. uh, incredibly difficult for me, and I hope it is for anyone who's following the war the tragedy of the war on a daily basis, we're almost becoming numb to, and this is an aspect of it, this scorched earth that is particularly disturbing to watch because we're helpless to intervene and intercede. That We can give the Ukrainians weapons and money and to fight the Russians and expel them since they're clearly the aggressor, but how do you stop the Russians from sending uh, Iranian drones and, and, and destroying uh, energy and infrastructure and keeping people in the middle of a bitter winter with no lights and, and no heat. It's it's incredibly tragic and sad, but it's a big part of his strategy, again, as I said earlier, to his hope would be to force Ukraine to the table by doing these things, by destroying their will to fight. That's the essence of what he's trying to do. And, and the second part of this uh, weaponization of energy is, of course, targeted at the Europeans, which seems to have even less effect. Of course, they're not being targeted in the same direct, brutal ways that, that the Russians are attacking Ukraine. But uh, he's hoping that over a hard winter, if it turns out to be that in Europe, that the Ukrainians might uh, second guess their decision not to turn to Russian energy sources. I don't think that's going to work in either case. In other words, the Ukrainians are going to make it through the winter, I believe, because they have such an incredible will to fight and they're very courageous about it. And I think the Europeans have resolved by and large to rid themselves off the downsides of relying on Russian energy. So Rolf, we just talked a little bit about the almost daily attacks you know, in Ukraine designed to turn off that heat that you talked about. Big part of that are the drones that Russia is getting from Iran. That's a deepening relationship. It seems to be of growing importance to Moscow's ability to keep up, you know, the barrage. One of the things I'm worried about, and just get your reaction to this, is the Iranians, as you know, better than anybody, you know, has an enormous arsenal of all sorts of missiles. And, you know, if the Iranians started sharing those with the Russians, you know, you know that, that would be a significant addition to what the Russians have to offer in terms of firepower. Just get your reaction to that. Yes. We have seen drones introduced in a way. I have a number of uh, friends and contacts and people that are deeply, intimately involved in the drone business, if you will, both from the military and commercial sides. And I talk to them a lot. It's just 
incredible how this technology has taken off and is being showcased. Uh, I hate to use that word, but in, in, in this war. And uh, the Iranians are getting a lot of free advertisement for, for their drones. And it's made a big difference. But as we're seeing the situation develop, weapons in general, drones, missiles, HIMARS, uh, anti-aircraft systems like the Gephardt and Patriot missiles potentially going now to, I guess the U.S. has reached an agreement to send them to to Ukraine. I don't think any introduction of these weapons, including the possibility Iran might introduce ballistic missiles or their missiles to counter the fact the Russians are using theirs at a staggering rate. I don't think that's going to change the balance, Michael, because the essence of the war resolves down to which army can fight and hold territory on the ground and which army will prevail in terms of numbers and ability to fight on the ground. Now, it's not to to dismiss or, or to say those kinds of conditions aren't significant. We have seen, however, take the drone situation slowly over weeks, and particularly the first few days of this new year, Ukraine fight back much more effectively against the drone, shoot a a much larger percentage of them out of the sky. And we're going to continue to see Ukrainian air defenses strengthen. I think for uh, people I've talked to are true military analysts. I'm not. I'm trying to look at more of the strategic picture. Uh, Continually tell me that we're, we're learning so many things about waging war, one of which is the importance of air defense in general. And, and uh, the time favors Ukraine, I believe, in establishing a more effective air defense system over the country than it does the Russians introducing uh, new and novel forms or numbers of weapons to attack Ukraine. So we're going to see that gradually reach an equilibrium, and it's going to, again, boil down to who has the, uh, the best army in a strategic sense. Now, I'll mention one thing specifically on Iran. I haven't followed it very closely, but I think for Iran itself— Yes, there's now a closer relationship between Iran and Russia, but from everything I'm hearing, Iran has limits too in how far it wants to go in enabling Russia and Ukraine, just like I believe the Chinese do as well, because there are definite downsides to going overboard in arming Russia against a war that I think, frankly, makes Iran, of course, they're split like every other country on people who are comfortable and not comfortable giving uh, Russia these weapons. But in the aggregate, no country, China, Iran, others who may be assisting the Russians, I believe want to go overboard to the point they it creates liabilities for them and what they're trying to achieve in their national security policies. So I, I think there are limits. I'm not dismissing the possibility the Iranians might become more aggressive as the war rages on, but I think there are limits and we should be very, U S administration should use all the means at its disposal to try to encourage other countries to not send these weapon systems to, to Ukraine. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Rolf Moet Larson. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Ralph, the, the fourth part of Putin's strategy from your perspective is maybe the one that's the most chilling. It's to exterminate Ukrainian culture and independence. And in the context of this piece of the strategy, I'm hoping you can talk a bit about an issue that I don't think has gotten enough mainstream attention, which is Russia's kidnapping of Ukrainian children. Yeah, Michael, I think uh, of all the uh, atrocities and war crimes, uh, even genocide, that we can't forget are occurring every day in Ukraine. The most disturbing thing to me is there hasn't been the international outcry I would have expected against it. Now, I know uh, there are some serious organizations conducting very diligent war crime investigations into rapes and murders and killing of civilians. And, and that is, uh, of course, we, we unfortunately, the world experienced this tragedy so many times. There's an actual whole regime set up to investigate war crimes. And, and I know that work is being done. The, the uh, abduction and, and send transporting of children, Ukrainian children to Russia strikes me as particularly heinous and, and something that much more attention should be focused on. I'll go back to the beginning of the war when we were all weighing in our minds whether Putin would really do this, conduct this invasion a year ago. And one of the reasons I felt so uh, terribly, darkly confident he would was because I know about his own his his own personal feelings and many of his inner circles about Ukraine from this standpoint of wiping Ukraine off the map, which was actually an expressed ambition to wipe Ukrainian culture off the map. It's not something that's quietly or secretly held view. It's been explicitly stated. And so we, we see it in the war as far as uh, bombing Ukrainian cultural landmarks, uh, wiping out uh, their history, their identity. So it's, it's broader than culture and independence. It's a disdain for the idea of Ukrainian independence because somehow Ukraine is Russia and Russia is Ukraine. That, of course, that idea, that thought goes against everything in the modern world we created since the collapse of the Soviet Union, even though somebody might be able to raise a Russian nationalist or writer or Putin himself old history to support the premise that somehow they're entitled to do what they're doing in Ukraine because Ukraine isn't independent and doesn't have its own identity. So that's why I think it's so important because it resolves to another question, Michael, that we have to think a lot about why are we fighting this war? Right. Is this a war against a non-NATO member that we don't stand and defend because Ukraine is not part of NATO? They're an independent country that we gave security guarantees to when they became independent, and yet they're suffering this horrific uh, tragedy when there are such such strong limits in what the West is able to do to help them defend themselves. Uh, so I, I know I've gone on a bit here, but I think that's probably the most important question you asked from my personal perspective. And then uh, specifically, what what happens to these children 
who are taken from Ukraine and sent back to Russia? I frankly don't know. There's there's um, uh, too little reporting that I've uh, reliable reporting. I don't want to quote sources. I, I I don't know what's happening to them. I don't know the purpose of, uh, of of this. I don't know what the population consists of of children that have been subjected to this. But I you know it's something that should be reported on more widely by the international press. So we will all know more about it. Yeah, the Institute for the Study of War has continued to focus on this, but it really hasn't gotten out into the mainstream media. Which brings me back to something you said earlier, Rolf, which is we're all sort of getting numb to this, right? Which which plays, I think, into Putin's hands to the extent that we, you know, that our media stops reporting on this, stops its focus on this, um, puts its focus elsewhere. Uh, that plays into Putin's hands. Yes. I mean, <laughs> simply put, I agree with you. And uh, it, I think the problem of not having, as Putin has a, if you will, uh, an entire body of explanations for to justify and explain his own actions and the, the reasoning behind it. We don't counter with that. Typically, our president might get up or a world leader might get up and make statements about the support will give Ukraine money or weapons but not necessarily uh, discuss, uh, say openly, that our objective is to ensure Ukraine maintains its territorial integrity and that Russia does not escape the responsibilities of having waged this war. I think if I were to advise Western leaders in a way to shorten the war, frankly, or at least to, so that Vladimir Putin will ex- will understand our position more clearly, Western leaders, I believe, have to do a better job of explicitly stating what our war aims are and and what they're not in terms of what we're willing to settle for in terms of uh, uh, welcoming this aggression. You said something earlier, which I think is really important. You talked about Putin explicitly saying what his goals were with regard to Ukraine. And I just wanted to make the point to our listeners that that our adversaries often tell us exactly what they want and what they're going to do. We both remember the interview that Osama bin Laden gave in early 1998 when he said he was going to wage war on the United States, right, in an interview with ABC. Sometimes you just have to listen. Yeah, and, and I think what's uncomfortable, particularly if I were to use an American audience in, in trying to analyze when President Putin talks about his war against the Western values, his war against his disdain for the U.S., what he calls hegemony in the world. He's declaring the reasons this war is has happened, essentially. Uh, we just, over the years, haven't been listening closely enough to what he's saying, but he's been saying it for years throughout his rules. There's nothing surprising in many respects in what Putin has done and what he will do tomorrow because he tells us in advance what he's thinking and why he's doing things. And then, uh, Rolf, we talked about this a little bit already, but the last of the five pieces on your list of what Putin's trying to do is undermine NATO solidarity. Right. If if you're looking at the uh, NATO cohesion and state of the NATO alliance, or even more broadly, the Western alliance with, with the European Union and others, it's stronger than it was before the war by all accounts, whether it's the expansion of Nordic countries into NATO uh, 
prospectively or the fact that the alliance is held in ways that certainly Vladimir Putin didn't count on before the war. He was counting on being able to work weaknesses, uh, softness within the alliance through his, people he's known for years in various countries in Europe and the United States. And that didn't happen. So I think uh, one of the areas that he's gone, he's had to go back and regroup seriously is in calculating what support he can depend on from whom. And part of the reason he pivoted, I think, so strongly to the Chinese and uh, to some extent to India and certainly to Iran and even to some of the uh, Arab states is because he had no choices in uh, countries in Europe that might have been previously more inclined to, to be soft on Russia's activities in Ukraine. So that's a big problem for him. Do you see any softness in the EU at the moment? Well, of course, as you know, everywhere there's the diverse, there's a pluralistic uh, sure. views, and there's a well-established communities within Europe that the Russians know very well, particularly as they analyze uh, whether the, the the nationalist component. There are nationalists in Russia, there are nationalists in Ukraine. That those communities all know each other, and they know each other in Europe as well. So I think the calculations that have been made based on the strength of that kind of support. A good example would be Italy. The government in Italy having turned to the right did not have the consequences that many observers might have thought in terms of being soft on the Italian position towards Ukraine and and soft on Putin. It hasn't happened. Sweden, same thing with the government there. So calculations based on having some friends in Europe that would have stronger influence on European policies in Ukraine has not turned out to be a great benefit to Russia so far, and probably will in my view. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rolf, in your note to me, you put an X factor, which was nuclear weapons. The temperature has gone down in terms of the rhetoric. Where do you think we are today in terms of the risk of nuclear weapons used by the Russians? Yeah, Michael, that's, of course, an area of specialty. I think there are probably most of the things I've tried to cover today, there are a number of people whose views I would find more compelling than mine. But on nuclear, I try to stay up with uh, the people who are out there because I think we've learned since the war began that we have to reassess everything we thought we knew about the use of nuclear weapons and nuclear doctrine and certainly on um, deterrence. So in the way it manifests itself now is we're at a state, I think, where we went up and down We've sort of encountered the fear of the realization that this man, Vladimir Putin, 
may well use it if he feels he has to, to avoid being defeated in Ukraine. And I think we're still there. I think uh, there's been some helpful statements from Putin and from others that have toned, you know, say, if you will, turn the volume down on, on those kinds of threats. But the risk is there in a way we didn't imagine. We thought we had all still subscribed to the mutual assured destruction, I would call psychology, uh, certainly mentality, where we knew we couldn't fight a war where we used nuclear weapons because it might result in the destruction of the entire world. Well, that, that idea, that ethic doesn't exist, a shared common sense that we can't do it. It ruled throughout the 20th century, and now we're in a century where we can't count on that shared sensibility that, that we can't fight with nuclear weapons. And he shattered that, I believe, uh, because it was clear, no matter how you describe the rhetoric and the threats by him and others in the government, that uh, it was a possibility of some sort in their minds if things got right. bad enough. So I think we're in a state now as we, with the, having, again, not for, fortunately not had to focus on it much in the last few weeks, where I, I can contemplate it can come back into the picture. In other words, the use of tactical nuclear weapons under two conditions in this war. The first is if the Ukrainian army were to emerge from the spring with similar ambitions to the Russian army to mount some sort of a strategic offensive and we're able to actually do so. Now, I think that's a lower probability than uh, than 50-50 to be sure that they have the, uh, we call the force forces to do that. The, the But it's not out of the question. They'll try, like the Rus- Russians might try again at some point in 2023 when the weather gets better. Both sides' ambitions are renewed in the spring air. And at that point, if if the Russian army were somehow facing defeat on the battlefield, then I think nuclear weapons, again, will be something we're going to be talking about and Putin will be thinking about. So that's my big fear. And the second would be if the war were to reach a point where he is somehow facing strategic failure for other reasons on the war, whether it were problems from within Russia, which I still see no serious signs of dissent or moves against him that would result in his removal. But I think under those circumstances, we might also see a desperate move because nuclear weapons in the final analysis, what makes them even more tragic than they are just are in themselves is because the only they can't accomplish anything militarily when you submit their use to a, a broader analysis. You can't hold ground and take ground with nuclear weapons. You can blow holes in units. You can, you can distract everything with a strategic uh, pause, if you will, freezing the action. But the weapons themselves can't win wars. You ultimately will lose if you resort to using nuclear weapons. That has to be the position of every country who possesses nuclear weapons, including Russia. So, Rolf, if those are Putin's strategic pursuits, you know what he's trying to do strategically, how would you sum up from a strategic perspective where we are in the war today? I think Russia is losing. Uh, it's in denial about this, but the, the Russia is losing its ability to win the war on the ground militarily and won't be able to recapture a significant strategic uh, offensive. At the same time, it's hard to see that the Ukrainians can reach the level of uh, forces with uh, support from the West and soldiers and weapons 
to be able to expel the Russians entirely out of Ukraine. Uh, so meanwhile, <laughs> the forces on both sides, meaning uh, in Russia and Ukraine, and, and for that matter, a lot of their support going both ways, has solidified in a, in a very right-wing or one might say nationalist fashion. So the, those voices are louder. There's less willingness to compromise, as there always is in war and atrocity and loss of life. And, and uh, there's bitterness, obviously, in, in ways you can't possibly understand if you're not in that war. And it's really conspiring against any kind of a, a solution. And at the same time, this doesn't look like one of those war that's going to become a frozen conflict where we're going for years on the ground towards an Afghanistan-like humiliating defeat after 10 years as they suffered, or the Soviet Union suffered. I can't see this, the, the tempo, the losses, the number of people right. that are dying right. going on for that long. If you, you hear very little to talk, for example, Michael, about insurgency and, and, and guerrilla operations because this war is still being waged intensely on the ground with our tanks and artillery and now drones and weapons and increasingly lethal numbers of forces with Russia frantically trying to mobilize large numbers of men to join the front poorly equipped and badly trained. And Ukraine, you don't hear much about it, but it's certainly suffering also similar incredible losses. So at some point, it's hard to imagine something doesn't happen again, unfortunately, that shocks us all. We're in for some more surprises, Michael. That's, I am sorry, I can't enumerate what they are. They wouldn't be surprises. But this, I don't think this will grind to an inch-by-inch uh, kind of 20th century guerrilla operation or World War I kind of thing. This is going to continue to be very intense and volatile uh, with the possibility of introduction of new weapons and even new tactical nuclear weapons into the war. Ralph, where do you think Putin is politically at home at the moment? Well, I, I predicted when we went into the winter that I guess the essence of what I would surmise, and that's all I'm doing, I don't have a good, I don't have any uh, buddy reporting to me from the Kremlin, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but I, I suspect he's got full support. I mean, there's not much of a choice beyond Putin. If there was anything, anyone to move against him, I've heard, I, I won't even uh, grace a lot of the names I hear in the media with being any serious rivals to Putin. The only people who can run Russia are people from the uh, old KGB, FSB, military establishment. That's it, period. They're the only ones that anyone would turn to, as, the, as occurred in 1991 and 1993, as I said on a previous podcast. Those coup attempts were mounted by people from what the Russians call the special services and military forces. They're the only people who anyone would rally behind if if Putin were become too much of a liability. I don't see that happening. I see a lot more pain coming from the Russian side than anyone deciding to change, change leaders, uh, which is why I don't give much credibility to any reports I read, particularly on substantiated reporting of any sort of movement against Putin in Moscow. And then last, last question, Rolf. The West has been slow. I think that's fair, slow to provide Ukraine with what it needs to be more effective at pushing Russia out, slow to provide what President Zelensky has been asking for. What's your sense 
of why, and I know I'm asking you to focus on a part of the world that you're not used to focusing on, but what's your sense of why and um, how do you think about what we should be doing? I have a respect, certainly, for how the United States and the West have supported Ukraine to the extent it has from the very beginning yeah. and, and gotten a lot of the, the problems, the questions right, answered the questions in the right way for President Biden and for other world leaders by having really good intelligence and anticipating the, the war's developments, uh, I think, in a, in a very effective way up to now. So I, I'm not a critic either of the administration policies or the way the intelligence community is handled. So as a matter of fact, I think they're by and large good news stories. My singular point of, say, it's not really a criticism as much as an observation, is that from the beginning, it's not been clear to me that we know exactly what we're trying to achieve. Uh, are we seeking Putin's defeat? Well, I hear conflicting inf you know, ideas about that, fears uh, about what would happen if he were defeated, some of which you can imply from are implicit from what we've discussed. I also think that our war aims, in even in a more tactical sense, have been tempered by a desire not to escalate. So there's a reasonable, right. uh, the reasonable idea is that if you give weapons that escalate the conflict, it could spin out of control. Next thing you know, NATO's in a war and the United States is in a war with U.S. troops on the ground. None of us want that. So the idea was to introduce weapons when we, <laughs> I hate to use the phrase, felt comfortable that, it, that they might, they wouldn't do that. In retrospect, I think a lot of people might agree that we should have introduced things much faster to not prolong the conflict, but shorten the conflict, if you will. Um, yes. and, and I think that might have been the effect of taking a more bold position earlier on it. It, it of course, drives me crazy if our, if our end goal is to help Ukraine win the war, to hear, and I know you and I have discussed this, Michael, you know, oh, we're introducing this now. Why didn't we introduce yes. HIMARS a month earlier or Patriots or whatever the weapon yeah. system is? And, exactly. and so, yes, that's frustrating. And, and I hope the administration constantly, and I'm sure they're, I have to believe they're doing this, reviewing decision-making from the standpoint of anticipating events and being as proactive and I would say aggressive as possible because people are dying every day and it's a lot of people are dying every day. So the, the shorter somehow that we can work together, the U.S. and its partners in the West and other countries, frankly, even those supporting Russia, to shorten the war and get Russia out of Ukraine, the better those two countries will be, including Russia, by the way, and the world. And I think that should be the overarching objective to everything that's being done is to try to shorten the war, get the two sides to agree on something where Russia can leave, and uh, this war is over. And, and I don't think we do that by prolonging the arms deliveries and the support we give Ukraine. I think we need to to very strongly commit to ending this as short as, as soon as possible. Rolf, thank you very much for joining us as always. Very insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. That was Rolf Moet Larson. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 